Everyone has been let down by someone at some point. We give someone our word. We make a promise. I know my kids are really good at keeping my word at promises that I make. And when I fail, they remind me. So over time, big or small, this can lay the groundwork for being either overcautious or lacking assurance in what others promise. Turn the table for a moment and think of where each of us have let someone down at one point or another. It could have been this week or it could have been something a few years back. If I can be honest, I have contributed to someone else's and people's disappointments on so many occasions that I can't count. And so yet in our relationships, there comes a growing doubt of assurance of how much can be trusted, of how far can we really hope that our word will be kept. At the same time, there are other factors that contribute to why sometimes we fail to keep our word. It could be circumstantial, beyond our control. It could be health or a personal emergency that is part of life in a fallen world. Even with the best of our intentions, we are so limited in how we can keep our word to someone. And thus we say, the Lord willing. So no matter how much I try, I realize again and again how limited I am in wisdom, in strength and in ability to keep the next hour, never mind tomorrow. This is why I believe today's passage will be of great comfort and assurance for Christ's followers. It turns out that the Apostle Paul saw the same thing among Christians in the city of Rome in first century. So thus he's led by the Holy Spirit to write to this church and reminds them of God's full assurance in light of our weaknesses, in light of our inability to keep our own word at times. In fact, he says, let me tell you about God's full assurance from start to finish. And he wants to make it clear. And so we read from Romans 1 to 11. Our focus will be from verse 9 to 11. But a little bit of context. It's always hard to parachute into the middle of a book and figure things out. But to just draw us into this context, it's important to remember and know that in the first four chapters of Romans, Paul makes it very clear that all humanity is so stained by sin and living under the wrath of God. This is bad news, which none of us can do anything about to rescue ourselves from this kind of predicament. Yet in those very same chapters, he goes on to argue that the powerful gospel is the only means by which sinners of all stripes, all ethnicities, all nations will come to know, experience, and enjoy the God who made us. Thus today, we heard two wonderful baptisms. And so I was watching Nathan, and I sat there and I said, Lord... I long for that day with my boys and my girls. It's a great privilege and it was a joy to watch that. This is the powerful gospel. It is exclusively made possible in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul concludes, if you turn to the end of the very last verse of chapter 4, and he says this, He was delivered for our, to, to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And so, an exclamation point. 
And thus, when we return to chapter 5, the tone changes. Paul went from someone who is arguing for the gospel to a Pastor Shepherd voice. He goes from saying, you must believe this as the only hope, to talking about what it is to live the Christian life. He calls from calling the sinner to believe by faith in the first four chapters to saying, believer, now live this way. Live this way. And so thus, in these first 11 verses of chapter 5, Paul really lays the groundwork on the assurance of our salvation. What you have received is for sure. Don't doubt it. In these first two verses of chapter 5, we see how one can be at peace with God and a lasting hope. Relationally, we're justified. And in 3 to 5, we see how God uses suffering to cultivate an enduring hope. Positionally, we're reconciled. In verses 6 to 8, we see how the truth of the cross tells us that beyond doubt how much God loves us and not to lose hope. And so we approach verse 9. And there, a believer can say, okay, I know I have peace with God now. Praise God. I know that when I get to heaven, I will be, have glory with God. Praise God. But there lays a question. How do I know I will make it there? How do I know I will endure in the meantime, between now and then? That seems a long way off. Well, verse 9 to 11 will try to answer that. And attempting to do so, here's one way to capture the main emphasis, I think, in these verses. And that's this. God's people are given great assurance concerning our final salvation. God's people are given great assurance concerning our final salvation. Paul wants to make sure that we see Christ's death not only as a reminder of his holy love for us, but also of great assurance that believers do not have to worry about judgment day. So I think he proves this in two points. First one being this, that God's people have a secure future in Christ's death. Uh, we see this being teased out in verse 9 and 10. In the first part of verse 9, Paul says, therefore, indicating that he's drawing a conclusion, what he's been talking about already in these previous verses. He says, therefore, we now have been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So the fundamental threat confronting sinners is neither sin itself nor the power of Satan, but the wrath of God. And believers are saved from that only through the death of Christ by his blood. So just to make sure we don't get Paul all mixed up here, it's helpful to understand what he means by the phrase saved by him. And a number of you already know this, but it is good as a way of reminder that the New Testament uses the word saved in three ways. First, he says, Paul in different places, I'm saved. We are saved from the curse of sin at salvation, at our conversion. This is what the Lord has accomplished in his dying on the cross on our behalf, that he died to save sinners from the curse of sin. Secondly, we can say, I'm being saved from the power of sin in this life after conversion. This represents the present and what God accomplishes in our day-to-day -day living as Christ followers, is where I can say, I'm being saved from the power of sin so that I can walk in the Spirit and live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. 
Third, we can say, I am fully saved from the presence of sin in the presence and in the presence of Christ forever. This is the full restoration to glory. This is after final judgment. In this case, believers will be looking forward to our future glorification. The work that has begun in the past by Jesus continued into the present and power of the Holy Spirit will be perfected one day. In that day, we will be delivered even from the presence of sin and made like Jesus forever. So I think in this passage, Paul has a third view in mind. The future, the full salvation. Because he says, we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. There's a future tense. Although it is correct to say that the wrath of God, we can be presently seen in the moral depravity of man, as described in the first chapter of Romans, Paul here is saying there's a final day of judgment that he has in mind when he talks about the wrath of God. So this is not... Uh, unique to the letter of Romans, by the way. We read Paul's letters in other New Testament. We will note that Paul is always thankful for the cross in the past. He's always thankful for the sanctifying work of God in the present. And he's always thankful for the glory that awaits believers in the future. So the gospel moves us to give thanks for the past, the present, and causes us to look forward to the future. In verse 9, he's saying that, hey, if you are in Christ then you are justified on the basis of Christ's death, and you can be certain of being saved from the outpouring wrath on the final day of judgment. Now, this may raise a question. How are we saved from the wrath of God? Well, verse 10 tells us by his life, in reference to his current exalted position. So our full assurance is not only by Christ's death, but also his resurrection and his exaltation. And it's because he's alive now, in this very moment, that believers can be in union with the living Christ. And he saves us from final judgment. Now, just in case we miss this point, Paul says the same thing twice in verse 9 and 10. It's an argument going from the greater to the lesser. Okay, let's look at verse 9 for a moment. Since... He says, we have now been justified by his blood. That is the greater. And he says, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? The lesser. Verse 10. If God uses the death of his son to reconcile us, the greater, how much more shall we be saved by his life? The lesser. God will use the life of his son to keep his children as his own. If God has already done the harder thing through the death of his son, granting us salvation, how much more will he do the easier thing? Our final salvation on the day of judgment, which is our full and certain assurance. So it seems for Paul, it is inconceivable that Christ should fail to save us to the end. And he wants the Romans Christians to grasp this. If God has already accomplished on the cross the hardest part of giving his son, then we are given great assurance of his help from the time of our salvation to the end. After all, warrant those his parting words, the Lord Jesus to his disciples at Matthew 28, 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As uh, Montgomery Boyce said, if, if God has already justified us on the basis of Jesus' atoning death, if he has already pronounced his verdict, any verdict rendered at final judgment will only be confirming it. 
J.D. Crawley, a missionary to uh, Cambodia, shares a story in his book, um, a story of a boy playing in a canoe that was tied to the shore. Um, but, the, but the rope came loose and the boy started drifting downstream very quickly. And so he begins to scream and no one heard him. And before long, a canoe entered a strong current where he was far from his village. So many kilometers down the stream, a family was having a picnic and they can hear a kid screaming for help. And they can see a runaway canoe. And the father jumps into the water and swims with all his might, reaching the boat just as his strength was about to give out. And he gets in and he paddles the, the canoe back to shore and carried the frightened boy into the car. After giving him some food and water, he put him in the car to drive him back up to his village upstream. And as he drove along the road, the boy, uh, eyed with fear and suspicion, asks, Are you really going to take me home? If you were that father, how would you answer that question? I think here's what the father would say. I almost died saving you in the river. How much more now? That I've already saved you, will I take you all the way back home to your safety? He had already done the hardest thing for this child by saving his life. To take him back home in the car is the easy thing. And that's what Paul is saying. What Jesus did, the hardest thing is to saving us. The easy, the assurance is to take us home. This is what Paul is trying to say to the believers who might be concerned that they are all on their own and somehow God has abandoned his redeemed. Paul goes on to say, I got good news for you. What God promises and begins, he keeps and accomplishes. I remember when we were preaching through Romans in our church, one of the things that kept on coming up again and again is that God is a promise-making God and a promise-keeping God. And that's true throughout the biblical narrative. Now, if you're not a Christ follower, friend, uh, maybe you have been in church, maybe you've heard the gospel, but you have never personally turned and trusted like these two young men who shared their testimony with us today. It's impossible thing for anyone, apart from the finished work of Christ, to save themselves. We're like that boy going downstream, helpless and hopeless. But sometimes we use all kinds of arguments to try to um, rescue ourselves. And one of them is very typical. I'm a good person. I'm kind and considerate to others. And I even give to charity. I even volunteer for good causes. I'm sure that God will not reject me. Well, why wait until Judgment Day to use this logic with God? Let's try to use that today. So I'm assuming today that Honda dealership down Eglinton Road is closed. But today or tomorrow, I want you to go out there and ask for the manager. And I want you to say to him, hey, listen, I'm a good person. I'm kind to my neighbors. I even cut their grass. Now, because of all of these good things that I do, can you give me a Honda Odyssey? Don't I deserve that? What do you think he's going to say? I know, they're, they're nice vehicles. I got four kids, I know how it works. What do you think the manager is going to say? He's going to say, you've lost your mind. If we can't even get a free car with our good works, what do you think we'll enter into heaven with? 
for us to receive the card, there's a transaction and a price to be paid. Friend, if you can't grasp this, the gospel tells us even our best efforts is stained with sin because we all have naturally lived our lives independent of God and His ways. Apart from the work of Christ, the only thing that sinners will face at the end, Paul said, is the wrath of God. For God cannot turn a blind eye to our sin. But verse 9 and 10 gives us wonderful good news that God saves sinners through His Son and keeps each one until the end. Full assurance. This means the one who turns and trusts in Christ can know for sure that final judgment of God's wrath will not fall on him and her. Why? Because it fell on Jesus on the cross. So if the Holy Spirit is convicting you of this reality, then friend, turn and trust and begin to follow Christ today. And if you turn and repent to Christ, be assured that God is ready to save you and me. For those who are Christ followers, here's an application for us to consider. Again, it is obvious in this text, but as a way of reminder, and that's this. We must ground our confidence in God's assurance. We must ground our confidence in God's assurance. Those who have been justified by faith, we have no reason to fear. Instead, we can walk in full assurance. Paul is saying, if we're saved then the best is yet to come. And verse 9 and 10 helps us to be sure of that. It's not just an Advent season, a couple of weeks away now, where we ought to remember God as Emmanuel, God with us in Christ. What confidence this ought to bring our souls? What consolation during times of troubles and trials? Our God is with us every step of the way and will lead us safely toward eternal rest. That's what Emmanuel is ultimately for us. So, we must eagerly look forward to our final and full salvation where the presence of sin is totally wiped out and will be glorified body with Christ. This truth alone gives us so much to be thankful for. And yet, Satan desires that we go on living like we have no assurance. And often because I fix my, my, my life on circumstances or situations or maybe even unanswered prayer, and Paul is saying, this is for sure. Keep your eyes fixed on this. He has done the impossible of reconciling us by removing the grounds of hostility and transformed our relationship with him from one of hate to one of friendship. So if God did that for us while we were enemies, Paul reasons that he's certainly going to save us from the final outpouring of his wrath on the day of judgment. Now that we are his family members. So God has done the greater thing, he will do the lesser. If he has saved us while we were enemies, he will certainly save us as his friends. Now there may come times and seasons where believers may struggle to grasp how we hang on until the end. Verse 9 and 10 tells us that it is actually God who carries us through the end. In his arms. This gives us strong comfort and assurance that God will not lose those whom he saved. So sometimes... Christians struggle with the question, can I lose my salvation? I think that is the wrong question to ask. Because that question puts too much emphasis on me, on us, as if our final salvation was our own idea. The real question is, can God lose even one of his own children? And the answer, Paul says, is no, never. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
Tim Keller says, the God who opened heaven to us will ensure that we arrive there. He will not shut the door. This takes us to our second point, and that's being this. God's people should rejoice in their reconciliation. Verse 11. Paul begins this section by listing the benefits for believers who have been justified by faith in these first five verses. And now in verse 11, he concludes it by saying that we rejoice in now received reconciliation. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, while it is true that justification and reconciliation are closely related, they're both um, by the death of Christ, there is an important distinction. That is the justification we meet the legal demand of God's holy law, and in reconciliation we meet the relational aspect of salvation. So in justification, you and I are forgiven in Christ. In reconciliation, we are restored in Christ. So God is concerned that believers have a deep assurance of our salvation. He's also concerned that we enjoy and exhibit this good consequence of the gospel in this life now. That there ought to be a fruit of that in our lives. So verse 11 reminds us the really unusual thing about our faith is that we can have hope and assurance and joy right now. Even in the midst of struggle. Our hope for the future is not grounded on something that will happen on judgment day but it is grounded on what already happened on the cross and that makes a big difference the gospel tells us that joy is not dependent on our circumstances or on our performance you know when we give our hearts to anything except God and seek happiness there we will be disappointed we will sooner or later realize that we're not happy and our happiness is brittle or insecure. Uh, we had to change the flooring in one of our bathrooms, and, 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 the, and the, it was very brittle. It was cracking all the time. It was cold, and, and I was regretting what we did. And so sometimes we, we put our happiness on things that are not strong, that are very weak, insecure. We realize that these things can never truly and permanently make us happy, and, and sometimes we, we, we retreat. And we say, okay, you know what? I won't give my heart to that again. But what are you going to do now? Well, we'll either look at something else because that void is needing to be filled and thus we get disappointed again and again or we give up on finding happiness and become very detached so we don't enjoy anything at all. And it reminds us that ultimately without the gospel we must um, either worship the world's pleasures or withdraw from the world's pleasures as one author put it. But the gospel gives us God, and he does not change. We can find joy in knowing him and knowing peace and fellowship with him, even when we lose things that are dear to us. We can look forward with iron-cast certainty to our home in glory. And when we enjoy a foretaste of it, as the Holy Spirit works in us and gives us that subjective knowledge of God's love for us, then our hearts Resting in Christ, we can rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we can enjoy the temporary things of this world, neither becoming disappointed nor detached from it. It's only in the gospel we learn to make sense of these things and enjoy them in a healthy way. Anytime I remove from that, I find it becomes an idolatrous thing, or we, put, we overemphasize it and overvalue these things. It takes us to 
sort of the point of application for us to consider from verse 11, that's this, that believers always have reason to rejoice in Christ. Always. I remember one of our elders telling me when I first started pastoring, he said, look, when you're struggling to pray on Sundays, you always have two things to rejoice in. Thank God for who he is and what he's done. Always. Thank God for who he is and what he's done. That was some 12 years ago. And that comes back to me again and again and again. To rejoice in God is the greatest of all human activities. However, an important first step is to be honest and admit that we don't often rejoice in God. We should ask us, why though? Why is it so? In fact, for believers, a good place to start is this passage in Romans 5, 1 to 11. If we do not understand that we're justified by faith, friends, we will not rejoice. How will we? If we do not respond to God for His grace, we will not rejoice. As Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, a failure to draw the necessary conclusions from Scripture will ultimately pave the way to not rejoice in God. So we can look at these first 11 verses of Romans 5, and we actually can draw the conclusions that we can rejoice in God. Why? Because we're justified by faith, but also we have been given full assurance that God will keep his word. What he began, he will accomplish. You may have other reasons not to rejoice. They may be circumstances or even varying kinds of suffering. If so, then we can reflect, in fact, in Romans 5 verse 3, to find comfort that all of our circumstances, all of our suffering, no matter how hard they may seem, they're all under divine providence of God, who saves us and keeps us until the end. Ultimately, whatever cause, anything that keeps us from rejoicing in God is inappropriate and should be overcome with the objective truth that God is for me and for you, brothers and sisters. One of the marks of a Christian is that he or she is rejoicing. That person is always thanking and praising God. We boast in God and not in ourselves. This is the opposite of Paul's description in chapter 1 of sinful mankind who knew God but refused to glorify Him or be thankful to Him. Thus in Christ, there always has been and always will be full assurance. The main point, God's people are given great assurance concerning our final salvation. If he has justified the believer in Christ, then it would make no biblical sense for him to turn around and condemn us. That is why we want to be crystal clear about the gospel of grace that is a powerful work to save sinners of all stripes. This is what enables God's people to face suffering, death, and whatever else future brings with confidence that we are always and always will be at peace with God, even as we hold out this hope to a world that is too busy being at war with him. Thanks be to God. Let us pray.